Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com because you won't find us on Google or Facebook. We respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And we are excited today to dive deep into a resource that we've talked about in the past, but really have not gone uh, into very deeply before. And I'm really excited to do that today because we got two experts. One is a patient who is an advocate of this approach and has MS herself, Linda. And she's been doing this for 16 years, has an LDN research trust group, which put, puts together seminars, educational interventions, and helps spread the word about this intervention, which is uh, LDN, low, which is short for low-dose naltrexone. And we'll describe exactly what that is in a, in, a, in, a, in a bit, but it's a powerful, powerful, safe, effective treatment for so many diseases that hardly anyone knows about. And then we also have Dr. Sarah Zilsdorf, who is an internist from my old neck of the woods up near the Chicago area and has uh, been using this therapy clinically. So we're going to get a clinician's in the trenches viewpoint on this. So welcome and thank you for joining us. I really appreciate, appreciate you being here today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So maybe Linda, uh, why don't we start with you and give us a little historical perspective on this. And then I guess we, I'm not sure who's best to, um, well, I, I, let me just frame this too, because one of the reasons we're having this is you've written a new book which is LDN, amazingly, and it's volume two, because the first book was written several years ago, but the newer book is recent. And it's an interesting book in that um, you wrote the foreword, and then there's a, a number of chapters, over a dozen, I believe, and each one of the chapters is written by, by a clinician. Uh, and uh, Dr. Zilzorp is one of the clinicians who wrote a chapter in that. So, um, but I think one of the first chapters goes into history. And so I don't know who you want to best describe it. But after you describe your, 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 you know, your experience with this initially, then we can figure out who's going to discuss how this came to being. Okay. Okay. All right. So Linda, why don't you start? Okay. So I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2000 with relapsing and remitting MS. And in 2003, I was told that I was secondary progressive MS and there was nothing more that could be done for me. There was no plan B. There was no suggestions of anything that could um, help me. So I decided I had to find an answer myself because there was nothing. No, no, nothing was given to me by the doctor. I was well, the consultant. It was the neurologist. I was how I felt written off. Um, at that point, the left-hand side of my body was numb with pins and needles. I'd lost the hearing in my left ear. I had double vision, restless legs, burning limbs, twitching muscles, vertigo, very bad cognitive problems, 
I couldn't hold a conversation. I was choking on my food. Fatigue was really, really bad. Um, my quality of life, if I'd have said it was a half a percent, I was probably exaggerating. It was um, very dire at that time. To sit at the computer, I could do 10 minutes. That's all I could do. It, it was very tiring. I knew that I wasn't unique, that there must be other people out there in a similar position to myself. And I managed to find some people in the US who were taking LDN. And everybody said the same, you know, if it doesn't do me any good, it's not going to do me any harm. I managed to find a doctor in Wales, a Dr. Wag Lawrence, and he gave me all the information. I think at that point, there were like 400 people in the UK who were taking LDN. I took the information to my doctor who wouldn't prescribe it, um, but she said if I could find a doctor to prescribe it, she would monitor me. So I, I felt as though I wasn't totally on my own. So that was reassuring. So I started LDN uh, the 3rd of December, 2003. And I was told I might have initial side effects. I might have sleep disturbance, vivid dreams, upset stomach, headaches. I had nothing and I was disappointed. I wanted every side effect you could have because I wanted to know it was working because I didn't have another plan myself. So three weeks later, after having been disappointed that I didn't have any side effects, suddenly it was as though living in my head was like a television set that wasn't tuned in, couldn't hear properly, see properly, process anything. And suddenly it was as though that television set was being tuned in. I could start to process thoughts. The double vision wasn't as bad. The hearing started to come back. It was amazing. And it took me about 18 months to feel um, well again for somebody better. with MS, put it that way. Better, better. Yeah. To feel, feel a lot, lot better, yes. So in February um, 2004, I decided, well, I had to decide what I wanted to do from there on. Did I want to keep that information to myself and say, you know, I'm okay now and get on with my life? Or did I want to shout it from the rooftops and try and tell those people that were in the deep, dark place that I was in? So it was a no brainer. I wanted to help other people. So I, it took five months to become a registered charity. It's a nonprofit organization here in the UK. We work globally helping people. And as you said, we help with information, we organize conferences, we have a radio show, we have user guides, loads and loads of information on our website with prescribers and pharmacists, people that are very knowledgeable in what's LDN. Your web, what's your website? It's www.ldnresearchtrust.org. Okay, great. I'm just curious. Um, it sounds like you weren't really doing much prior to the LDN because there are some interventions that can be used for natural medicine, things like optimizing your vitamin D levels uh, and uh, omega-3 fats and even excluding potential contributing autoimmune triggers. So, But you weren't doing any of those, were you? 
Not prior to LDN, no. Um, Our Western medicine here doesn't take into account diet supplements or anything (laughs) like that. Of course. It doesn't count, you know. Um, And when I did alter my diet and take supplementations and things, I was actually asked by one doctor why I was doing it. And I just lost my mother. (laughs) And I can remember saying, thinking, where do I start on this explanation of why I'm doing what I'm doing? So I just said, because it makes me feel better. (laughs) I thought that will do. That'll do and it'll avoid arguments. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. So it's interesting because you did the intervention as a solo variable. So we know that was the only thing that can cause you to improve. So that's a, that's a powerful anecdotal testimony. So let, let's shift, shift to Dr. Sarah Zilsdorf. And, um, and if you can discuss with us or describe your uh, journey into this space, uh, you are uh, conventional medicine, but then uh, I guess are a functional medicine also, functional medicine physician. And, uh, you know, what got you interested in, you know, and how long have you been doing this? So I have a pretty unique perspective. I always say I am uh, not only the hair club president, but I'm also a client (laughs) (laughs) because I think that anybody who is in conventional medicine has to go through something pretty, um, pretty dramatic and extraordinary to, so to pretty much turn to the dark side, because it's so easy to not ask questions after your training. And, um, And, you know, for me, it was my own personal health. Um, I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism in around 2003 when I was in college. And just like Linda, I had gotten sick uh, with a virus that had actually gone to my ear, caused terrible uh, vertigo um, when I was doing an internship. And the following year, I developed symptoms of hypothyroidism, wasn't diagnosed with autoimmunity for 10 years until I got very, very sick on the conventional treatment for hypothyroidism. while I was training in med school and then in residency. And it culminated in uh, two leaves of absence. I actually was bed bound uh, during my first year of residency um, and was diagnosed with a variety of maladies um, and separate. Uh, so it's so funny, opposite of Linda, I had started to learn about functional medicine and all of the different um therapies for autoimmunity and taking it into my own hands and making those changes. Um, And I had regained my health, had found other doctors to help me get on the proper medication as I had lost my thyroid function several years ago. had learned how to, you know, learned all about functional nutrition and those triggers for autoimmunity and started to do all of the things that I needed to do to optimize um, my biomarkers, remove systemic inflammation, and um, was able to return to my training. Um, I had been told that I could never have children and uh, had surprisingly um, became pregnant uh, and had a daughter um, in my second year of training. Now, after having her, I flared with my Hashis. Um, and it was then that a doctor had put me on low-dose naltrexone and it got what, me back what, to- What year was that? 2014. Okay. And it changed my life. It was the first time that I had not had chronic pain. I had actually had a congenital birth defect I had tracheoesophageal fistula at birth and had had surgery. So I had extensive scarring and um, a cervical 
um, a vertebral issue from that from that defect. I had had chronic pain, and it was the first time in my life that I didn't have chronic pain after taking LDN, and it really changed the course of. Um, of my life. And once I graduated from residency, I started treating patients with a variety of issues um, with low-dose naltrexone. So I've treated thousands of patients with LDN. Um, and if I may discuss briefly about naltrexone and, uh, and very sure. interesting about it. So um, I, am, uh, I wrote uh, three chapters in the new LDN book. I uh, co-wrote a chapter on chronic pain um, with a uh, pain, uh, pain management expert, MD, uh, from, from the East Coast, Dr. Neil Mehta. And I authored the traumatic brain injury chapter, and I also did the uh, appendix on dosing protocols. No, that's, um, that is probably the most useful, not useful, but helpful resource in the book is it because I was reading the whole book and saying, Oh, yeah. where are they going to take this? And at the very end, it tells you. Yeah. And, and the, the, the crux of the matter is when I started, uh, so I started with the LDN research trust in 2017, I got called at the 11th hour to speak at the, uh, research trust convention, uh, at the conference. And at that time, there was basically one strict regimen. You know, we all kind of followed a certain dosing strategy of going from one and a half milligram to three milligram to four and a half forward two years later to 2019, three years later to 2019. And there are a myriad of treatment protocols depending on what we are using LDN for. And so naltrexone is just such an interesting um, drug. And, and, and I read, you know, Dr. Mercola, I read your uh, summary of it from 2011. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's one of the few pharmaceutical um, drugs that you really endorse as a, you know, as a, as a really profound adjunctive therapy. And I agree. So, so naltrexone is one of the few things that actually enables our own bodies, our own immune systems to uh, be able to function better and, and really restore function. So what it does is it's so interesting after world war II. um, they were looking for around that time, they were looking for um, more opioid medications. And by accident, scientists actually figured out how to, how to find something to block the opioid receptor. And of course, I'm sure those guys were nearly fired at the time. You know, they did the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do, which is to find morphine analogs um, for soldiers. And we knew as soon as the, uh, about the sixties, they were able to synthesize naloxone and naltrexone. Uh, very interesting that, um, and then in the 1970s, so they started using that for, uh, for uh, opioid addiction later on. So it was actually uh, FDA approved in the 1980s for opioid addiction at a dose of 50 to 100 milligrams. And then in the 1990s for, for alcohol dependence. Um, but it was Dr. Um, Dr. Bahari and Dr. Ian Zygon in the 1970s that really had this amazing idea that if you took a very small dose of naltrexone, in fact, compounding it in a clean way to low dose naltrexone, to a few milligrams, if you briefly blocked the opioid receptor in the central nervous system, very briefly kissing that receptor and then unblocking, you could upregulate the body's immune system via increasing the opioid receptor's own production. So endogenous production of beta endorphin and met and So beta endorphins help with mood, 
with pain, with sleep and the immune system. And metankephalins are also known as opioid derived growth factor. And there are receptors on many different tissues. So including the thyroid. And for me, it was a profound treatment and it is so for many of my patients and for a myriad of conditions. We now use it for nearly all autoimmune conditions uh, as an adjunct for cancer, as an uh, as a treatment for chronic pain. We actually use ultra low dose naltrexone, which I wrote about uh, to help potentiate pe people who are on opiates um, and help them to be less dependent on opiate medications. I've actually been able to get patients off of fentanyl patches and get them off of um, chronic oxycodone or narco use where their doctors, their pain specialists said, you will never ever get off these pain, these pain medications. So it's been an incredible journey. Um, and I'm, I'm a huge advocate of it. Great. So now Trexone works obviously for opioids. Uh, so that would typically be heroin or morphine as most of us understand it, but these, there's these far more potent newer derivatives primarily produced within this century or certainly at the end of last century, things like fentanyl. So um, you alluded to it, but I'm, I, I suspect that naltrexone is also useful for those too. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, it's particularly intriguing because it, it's sort of gotten out of the uh, discussion with this COVID-19 nonsense that uh, the opioid epidemic that has killed tens of thousands of people is a serious issue. And naltrexone is actually uh, not only a, a therapy that can help people resolve that addiction, but it can also acutely prevent them from dying. So maybe you could address that for a moment. Absolutely. So naloxone is is actually what you know is carried on ambulances and what is used uh, you know in in uh, in ERs and trauma bays you know worldwide. It oh, is. And what's the difference the, between naloxone and naltrexone? So naloxone is very short acting, okay. and it is uh, it is one specific derivative. They're both you know they're both synthesized. Uh, there's a slight. Uh, difference on one chain basically that makes it naloxone versus or Narcan versus naltrexone. And mm -hmm. so it's also the bioavailability. So there's a difference in how it's, how it's processed in the body, but, um, but naloxone or Narcan is a, you know, when you give it at a high enough dose is a complete blockade. So we use it ac acutely to get someone out of that, that overdose situation, you know, someone who's got respiratory depression and, it, you know, in, in, in someone who may be unconscious and it, it absolutely is a lifesaver versus naltrexone, yeah. naltrexone, which is brief blockade and, and different. So, so totally different mechanism in LDN. We're actually looking not at the blockade part, but at the rebound effect over that next 18 hours versus the couple of minutes where somebody has to actually be redosed to with high dose naltrexone or Narcan or naloxone, excuse me. So, so it's a little, it's a little bit different. Let's just go over a bit of the mechanism on how opioids kill you. Yeah, uh, it's because you, you mentioned respiratory depression. That of course is the clinically uh, correct uh, summary, but I think people don't necessarily understand what that means. Uh, so essentially, it shuts down your body's ability to breathe. I think it, it inhibits these uh, receptors in the the the, the hindbrain, I believe that the brainstem, yeah, the brainstem that 
causes, it gives you the reflex to want to breathe. So it's suppressed and you just simply stop breathing. So it's not really a toxic reaction where you're being poisoned. It just stops you from breathing, which is not a good thing. You, know, you could theoretically be in CPR and be fine, but you know, someone's got to breathe for you because you stop. And, and the danger, the, the danger is, you know, I'm from the Midwest. I'm actually from Ohio and, and I have a lot of, um, a lot of family members and friends, uh, um, at home and in Franklin County, which is where Columbus is, I get reports of how many overdoses there are from the coroners, you know, every week. And the problem is people are getting these street drugs, they're getting oxycodone or they're, they're, they're thinking that they are, that they're getting these derivatives. But the problem is, is that they're being cut with fentanyl, which is so much more potent. It's a very, it's a synthetic, it's a synthetic opiate that's, that's meant to be only used in the hospital. Um, and, and at a very, very, uh, at a very, very uh, small, small rate. Now, now we know, you know, we know different, different um, famous people that have actually died because they were given this drug, you know, inappropriately by their doctors too. It should only be used by um, anesthesiologists, you know, under a really controlled situation. But basically these street drugs are getting cut with this highly potent fentanyl and then, and, and, you know, just a tiny amount, you know, something like on it that would fit, you know, on a less than an eraser head, you know, would kill you. And so we're getting young people that are taking this drug and getting, you know, an acute overdose and not being able to be revived. You know, it's just killing people. On the other side, you have people who become dependent on opiates and they require larger and larger and larger amounts of it to, to be able to have pain, you know, uh, pain relief. They're getting chronic constipation their bowels are shutting down. They have all sorts of other, you know, problems aside from going into withdrawal, just from not having that drug, which is, which is a, a really, you know, terrible experience for people. So they will do anything to just not have the withdrawal. So they will go into a state of dependence where they just have to take the drug so they don't go into withdrawal, but they're not necessarily getting pain relief because they're dependent on the medication. So it's a, it's a lose, lose strategy. So patients are, are trying to get something that will help the pain and the they are in, uh, you know, they're in a they're in a, a dire situation, and we're seeing we're seeing this effect, um, you know, especially where where we're from now. I just I just think that it's a travesty that LDN is not being used, or ultra low dose naltrexone is not used as a standard of care for these patients. Now I know there's a drug um, that's a combination with ultra with a little bit of naltrexone in it that is um, under review for the FDA for that reason. So they do know about this. Great. So as you mentioned earlier in the 80s, Bilhari used this treatment to for primarily for AIDS patients in New York City. Yes. And obviously AIDS patients have a severe, profound depression of the immune system. So that where we is where he's the I think we owe a deep debt of gratitude and, and uh, uh, for, to Dr. Bilhari for discovering this. Uh, and that really seems to be the impetus for applying it for immune disorders. So uh, I'm wondering um, a few things. One is if um, yourself personally with the Hashimoto's and then Linda too, if you've applied, I mean, si since you've been using the LDN, if you're using other autoimmune strategies like the vitamin D, the omega-3, and then also elimination of potential triggers, which I want to talk about. But why don't we talk about the vitamin D and omega-3 first? Absolutely. I can speak for myself that in myself and in my patients, every single one of my patient is optimized for vitamin D status. And I look at, 
I look at markers of lipid peroxidation. I look at markers of a which one are you looking like for HNE? ratio. For HNE. Which which marker of oxidation for HNE or? Um, so yeah, um, eight hydroxy deoxyguanosine. Okay. Uh, and then sometimes pro yeah peroxides, and then um, omega six to omega three ratios. Okay. Uh, we look at those. I want to get that optimized. I get them on a you know a Mediterranean paleo diet a template or a, a oligo antigenic um, elimination diet. So an elimination diet for all of my autoimmune patients. Um, getting them, you know, detoxified as much as we can by meaning just getting all of their cells to work as best as we can, optimizing liver function, kidney function, skin, uh, microbiome. So I, I'm a microbiologist and I do a ton of advanced testing and that, and then we start looking deeper at triggers, you know, so you're a microbiologist before med school. Correct. I have an undergraduate in microbiology. I have a master's degree in public health microbiology and emerging infectious disease. And I was going to be an infectious disease specialist, but I got sick on the way. <laughs> well, that is fascinating. So do you, do you improve their immune status and in, in biology prior to implementing the LDN or you do it concurrently? So it's interesting. I used to put everybody on LDN first, but now we know that certain patients will flare because their immune system is so suppressed that because of due to co-infections and we see it most with Lyme disease and with yeast, at least I do with yeast overgrowth. And so if I suspect, or I have tests that confirm that a patient has one of these things or their immune system is super suppressed and I, you know, I'm concerned for Lyme disease, I'll work on their microbiome before I start LDN. Okay. So I wanted to discuss the antigen elimination because clearly, I mean, the reason why people have an autoimmune disease is that they're exposed to something in their environment, an antigen, which is a protein usually embedded on the cells that causes the body to recognize it as a foreign invader. And then as a result, uh, it, it attacks it with, with its own immune system. So uh, if you can avoid those antigens, I mean, you can pretty much suppress the symptoms without anything because you're removing the stimulus for it. So um, I never had a, a chance to apply this clinically because I stopped seeing patients toward the end of last decade, uh, before the, well before the end of last decade, and didn't know and understand this very well that, that, this was a, that this was a cause. But recently I began to appreciate that simply excluding many ostensibly healthy foods like vegetables, could be a real big trigger for this. And there is a, uh, the daughter of Jordan Peterson, Michaela Peterson, who had or has severe juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And I had treated probably about 3000 patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which is quite extraordinary for a primary care physician. And of that 3000, I would say a handful, less than 10, maybe five. So JRA is pretty uncommon. So she had one of the worst cases I had ever seen uh, and was really quite debilitated, had surgeries and was on really strong medications for it. But what she had encountered was the carnivore diet. And literally it performed a miracle in her life. And she had tried so many other things. This was, this just literally put her into a complete remission. So, uh, and then I encountered uh, Dr. Paul Saladino, who's wrote the book, The Carnivore Code. And, and, and he he's had similar experiences in his clinical practice. And I'm wondering, if you've ever implemented that type of strategy or do you, do you have an alternative oligoantigenic approach? So 
Uh, long story short, yes, I have. I'm very, uh, was going to name drop Dr. Saladino as well. I'm glad you brought him up. Um, so his approach of nose to tail, um, <clears throat> carnivore, whole, you know, whole animal fats, um, you know, supplementation basically and diet is a way of basically offloading um, and simplifying what antigens the body is seeing. And I have implemented this in my patients. So there are a whole bunch of docs that are kind of doing variants of this. You know, you had the paleo mom, Dr. Sarah Valentine, and uh, some of the other, um, some of the other, one of my, one of my good friends, um, uh, Jessica Flanagan wrote a book, The Loving Diet. So back around between 2012 and Terry Walls, Dr. Terry Walls as well, between 2008, when Terry Walls kind of got out of, when she got out of her wheelchair with relapsing remitting MS to to, to Sarah Valentine's um, paleo diet, uh, Jack Cruz writing about an epipaleo template. We, we got on this kind of paleo and AIP template, autoimmune paleo. And autoimmune paleo and Jessica Flanagan took it a step further by doing low histamine, low FODMAP, and, and starting to introduce these things. But again, it was restricting and again, eliminating the highly antigenic foods, you know, things like nightshades, which again, in my patients with rheumatoid arthritis, there is a subset that are exquisitely sensitive sensitive and what's so interesting that you have dr gundry who you know started looking at lectins mm -hmm. i actually do a lot of testing and so i test everybody's gut and what i see universally is you get this hyper intense uh intestinal permeability in these cases we get the the making of antibodies to zonulin and actin and occludins which are these tight junction proteins in the gut and, and we actually make these proteins in the brain too. So what's so interesting is a leaky gut equals a leaky brain and, and we overwhelm that immune system. And so I do see this. So the first step is, you know, getting them off the most common triggers. And sometimes I'll be testing for those lectins too. Uh, a most common, you know, thing that, that universally I say for all of my autoimmune patients is that they can't eat wheat. There are over 150 antigens in wheat that you can be sensitive to. And our wheat in the US especially is frankenwheat. Um, it is, it is uh, also desiccated with Roundup, uh, with glyphosate before, uh, right before processing. And so we get that extra toxicity. I test my patients for their environmental uh, toxic load. I see a lot of patients with glyphosate toxicity as well. Um, and so the wheat that we used to eat 10,000 years ago with the beginning of agriculture is not the wheat that are, it's not even the same chromosome number as what, as what our bodies, you know, ate in small amounts as hunter gatherers that were traditionally prepared. To, to answer your question though, yes, there are some patients who are so sick and so overwhelmed and they also can make antibodies against aquaporins, which are water channels, which are contained in foods such as tomato and spinach and corn. And those can cause much more brain symptoms and gut symptoms. And so, uh, especially traumatic brain injury patients. But in those kind of cases, if they are so sick or a juvenile rheumatoid arthritis case, or they're just so overwhelmed where they can't eat anything, putting them on a carnivore style diet or where they're flaring some of my histamine patients, I will, I will get rid of all of those antigens and, and do put them on a very nutrient dense uh, carnivore protocol, at least while we're working on their gut. Yeah. That, Cause it, it seems to me, that's the sort of the ultimate intervention. Uh, so a nose to tail carnivore diet from healthy meats. 
with the exception that you have to be really careful about uh, limiting or avoiding monogastric animals, which would be animals with one stuff, stomach. That would be the classic examples would be chicken and pork. Uh, because uh, for a number of reasons, the primary one is the number, the quantity of omega-6, primarily linoleic acid in their tissue, which can also metabolically wreck and devastate a person's health. So if you have, if you think you're doing carnivore and eating a lot of chicken and bacon, you are not doing your body a disservice at all. You really need uh, to restrict it to animals with multi-stomachs so that when they eat these grains and other uh foods in the environment that are loaded with these omega-6, they have bacteria in these, in these other stomachs, they can break it down and digest it to a healthier fat. So that would be things like buffalo and, and beef and lamb, which would be the healthier form of meat. But if you're eating, it seems to me, I'm wondering if you can share your experience where you had people who did this paleo diet, which is strictly is not carnivore at all, uh, that they had somewhat failed that. And then when you apply the more rigorous uh, carnivore intervention, nose to tail. So we, you know, we, we see so many pitfalls with people eating a paleo esque diet, either they're creeping in with other, with other antigenic foods, uh, vegetables that aren't prepared. Well, you know, they're, they're eating too many raw vegetables that aren't broken down when people eat vegetables, I have them eat, you know, uh, groups that they'll be less sensitive to. And I have them cook them, uh, you know, and tr prepare them traditionally in stews and things like that. Um, I will have, uh, I will have them pressure cook lectin rich foods so that their bodies can break them down, make sure they're using a lot of digestive enzymes, but still I'll have some that are reacting, you know, that either they're letting other things creep in, um, or they're just too sensitive and it, it necessitates, um, you know, going to a stricter approach. But I would say, you know, we run the risk if we go and we narrow too much. We also have patients that have eaten a paleo or a AIP diet and they're down to 10 foods or five foods. They lose oral tolerance, which is a much worse phenomenon because they actually have a, a co-infection. They have a chronic infection and their immune system is trashed. And then they also have more food sensitivities and even chemical sensitivities. They've lost oral tolerance. They've lost uh, tolerance to chemicals. And you have to really restore their microbiome and you have to really go, you know, they have a much bigger problem with histamines and all sorts of things. And so we start, you know, as a microbiologist, I start with the gut first now, you know, it's, that's my, that's my preference so that we don't narrow it too fast. We treat the gut we restore it. And, you know, and I truly do believe there's a, you know, there is a place for, um, for different, for these different diets. Yeah. Well, a beautiful thing about using a carnivore diet is that you basically are treating the gut because you're eliminating most all of the offending foods. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a FODMAP diet on steroids because there's, there's really no FODMAP uh, non-recommended foods in that. So I, I'm wondering, there's an intervention I recently learned about, um, uh, with respect to healing a leaky gut uh, and facilitating the body's ability to repair the damage. I'm wondering if you've heard or used it, and that is uh, alkalizing the body's uh, blood pH and doing that with something as simple as bicarb, somewhere on the order of a half a teaspoon three times mm -hmm. a day, and titrating the dose to the point where you can measure a random urine sample and that pH of that urine 
tested with simple litmus paper is about 7.0 because some people may need less than that. Some people may, may, may need more bicarbon. The fine tuning of it is rather than using baking soda to use something like potassium bicarb, which is a little more difficult to find, but I think metabolically a lot healthier than sodium bicarb, which is baking soda. So I'm wondering if you had any experience with that because purportedly it's, it, it is supposed to, to heal those uh, leaky gut loss of tight junction, uh, tight, tight junctions that are uh, supposed to be there in the gut. I don't have a lot of clinical experience, but I have uh, been reading a lot of a, a lot of my colleagues' work on it. I just haven't had the chance to really employ it yet as a as a standardized protocol. I have had a few patients uh, utilize uh, bicarb in their in in their process and have found it helpful. I haven't standardized it. Again, I I go for looking at that my looking at that microbiome. So sure. one of the one of the interesting things too is that I'm seeing a lot of metabolic metabolic endotoxemia. So mm -hmm. with, as a, you know, so when you not only get this leak, you get certain, um, with our Western diet, we get an overgrowth of gram negative bacteria, which the, the biggest, are you measuring LPS? Lipopolysaccharide? Yes. Yes. But it, we also measure, you know, actual groups of bacteria. So we measure these formicutes that, that overgrow in a Western diet, uh, with bad fats and then certain gram negative bacteria, the family Enterobacteriaceae, which the most famous of which is E. coli. And um, when we see those markers, you know, we want to bind up that LPS that's coming through aside from just aside from working on the gut and working on all the nutrients that can help that, you know, patients will have profound depression and profound immune system uh, dysregulation, inflammation from that LPS signal, you know, in high, it, if, if the whole bacteria gets through, that's how, that's how we get, you know, bacterial septicemia. But, um, at this micro, at this micro level, um, I'm seeing a, a, a dramatic amount of it, which is just, it's just, it's just profound to actually be measuring this. Um, and, and it just, it just causes such, such a catastrophic, um, domino effect. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, the nice thing about it is it's almost free. I mean, especially if you're using baking soda, gosh, a year's worth of therapy is probably 25, 50 cents. Mm -hmm. um, so if you start this, I would really appreciate you getting back to me and see what you find, because I think this is such a powerful, simple strategic intervention. And not only does it work for this, but it will also help reduce osteoporosis because if your urine's too acidic, you have to neutralize that acidity. And the way you neutralize it is sucking minerals out of your bone. To, to balance that that pH of the of the urine, so uh, it's a simple simple way. And you know, one of the things you can use, I I put two of those doses that I take in my smoothie because it, it almost is like a fizz and it's carbonate. But normally, the drinking baking soda and water, most people have had that experience. It does it's not very pleasant, so it's, the compliance would be a bit of a challenge. So for those who find that offensive and are unwilling to do it, what you can do is make a capsule up. You can you have these like triple zero capsules you can get and fill them up with the bicarb and just swallow the capsule and you don't have to worry about the taste or anything. So the compliance goes through the roof because you can't, fortunately, you can't buy this, <laughs> those capsules anywhere. You have to make them yourself. But boy, if you give that a try, I'd really appreciate the feedback from your patient population. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, uh, well, why don't we talk about some of, you know, we've been focusing on the autoimmune diseases. You mentioned, mentioned some others, uh, diseases, especially like in other infections like Lyme and the co-infections that are typically encountered with Lyme. So 
Um, why don't you dis discuss some of the other, other uh, approaches that LDN can be useful for? Linda, do you want to talk about, uh, I'd like to bring, you know, Linda, would you talk about yeah, some yeah. of the documentaries that, that the trust has done? I know the yeah. trust has done some on Lyme and, and I'll, I'll chime in about those, okay. but, um, but, but I think it's really interesting. We've gotten doctors from around the globe now using LDN for a myriad of, uh, myriad of conditions, huh? We have. And the first documentary was the LDN story. So that, uh, laid the foundation for the next um, documentaries. We had one on Lyme disease. Um, we interviewed about six different um, physicians that were using LDN for Lyme disease. We then had um, an LDN and cancer uh, called the Game Changer. And that was really interesting. We spoke to many um, cancer oncologists who were using LDN and at that time just be just after filming um, Professor Angus Delgleish who's an oncologist from um, St George's in London and one of his colleagues Dr Wei Lu in the laboratory they found that once they could get cancer cells with LDN into remission they could actually cause cell death by using pulse dosing. Now, it took them a while to get the paper published, which was a shame because it would have been good but um, to have that in there. But at the bottom of the documentary, there's a link to that paper so people can actually read it themselves. The holdup was that the results were just so astounding, nobody would believe them. So they redid it a second time which they had exactly the same results. And then again, they went back and they did it a third time to prove three sets of results, you know, that it wasn't a fluke, that it actually worked. And then we had the opioid documentary. Uh, we interviewed, I, I said five the other day, it was six pain specialists that are using LDN, exactly as you were saying, Sarah. If people aren't familiar with how... Um, that works with patients who are on very um, high levels of opioids and have been for 20 plus years. Um, Dr. Samyadev Data got me to meet some of his patients and they were explaining to me how when ultra low dose, I mean, in micro doses, I mean, we're talking really minuscule 0 0.001. I mean, it's such a tiny dose. Alongside... 0 0.001 milligrams? Yeah. Like micrograms. Then. Micrograms. Yeah. Yes. So they were using that alongside of the opioids at the dose they were on. And these people on a score of one to 10, their pain was at a 10, even though they were taking such high doses of, of opioids, but they couldn't reduce it. They couldn't come off it, but it wasn't working either. And some of these people were on cocktails of um, opioid medications. So what the protocol is, is that you take it with whatever dose of opioid you're on and slowly you increase it by 0 0.001 and you titrate one up and it makes the opioid far more effective. So you're able to then titrate the opioid down. So you titrate one up, one down until it gets to the point it's LDN. And 
I had one lady and she was in tears telling me her story. She'd been dependent for 20 years. I think she'd had a car accident or something which started off the her journey on opioids, which then just kept increasing as she was a nurse. And I think she persuaded Dr. Samuel Devdata, who is a pain specialist, to do it a little bit faster than he would really have liked. But she said she she knew her body and she got off of the opioids completely. She was on LDM, which was working more effectively for her. And she didn't go through withdrawal at all. Wow. And he he Good. got so many patients telling me the same thing. I mean, it was unbelievable, you know, and all these people. There's actually a there's a, actually a better British word for it, classically British word, brilliant. It's absolutely yes. brilliant. <laughs> that too, but it, it was um, amazing to listen to these stories that people had to say. And when I say stories, they're factual. They weren't um, mm-hmm. made up stories. And to say that it was life changing for these people doesn't even begin to feel to, to explain how they were feeling. That's terrific. Absolutely well, thank wonderful. you for sharing that. So, Dr. Sarah, can you uh, share some of your clinical stories with respect to, uh, you, you had mentioned previously your the ultra low dose and we yes. didn't get into detail. I was going to ask you about that, but Abs- ab- absolutely. And then actually also comment, uh, and then we'll talk about cancer, but comment on the, because it's somewhat has been displaced from the media because of COVID, but it, it, I suspect that the number of deaths from opi- opioid overdose has actually increased this year not decreased. Those are the trends in the Midwest that I'm seeing directly. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm looking at the, the reports, uh, in my neck of the woods and in, in, uh, in Illinois, uh, especially in rural areas and definitely in Ohio, that's my, the pulse that I have on it. Absolutely. People have been, um, you know, people have been unemployed, people have been, um, away from their support. Um, and there's been, you know, there's been a significant, uh, significant amount of, uh, you know, dis- despair. People, people sure. are really, people are, yeah, people are, people are really suffering. So absolutely not surprising. So I want you to describe the protocol and your experience with it. And then if you're watching this and you know someone and you probably do know someone because this is another epidemic and in some ways even more significant than the COVID pandemic. Uh, you can share this information to send them this link, this video, so they can know how to get off of this. And they don't have to die prematurely from this over from an overdose. So, so, you, so what what is your experience? You can find this information on the low dose naltrexone research trust, also in the LDN book too, okay, where good. we talk about where we talk about ultra low dose naltrexone. Um, so, for people who are opioid dependent, we use we traditionally use one microgram twice a day to start. And we, we look for that to start to help a patient to be able to use up to 60% less of their medication. And, and in some cases we're able to, as Linda said, up titrate to increase that ultra low dose to go to say two, twice a day, two micrograms, as we work on weaning that, um, that dose and some, and it depends. Now, other patients who are on low dose naltrexone, but also take a opioid medication, say for fibromyalgia, um, they just have to separate. So, so with low dose naltrexone, you have to separate the opioid medication by four to six hours. So it doesn't displace 
that dose. Um, so it's a, it really you really have to work with a uh, with a, a specialist. I have a, a friend in uh, Portland, Dr. Ginevra Liptan, who has fibromyalgia, who has the Frida Center for Fibromyalgia, and she she works with patients who have been on a myriad of opioid medications and uses low dose naltrexone and ultra low dose naltrexone as well. I also want to say that thanks to the work of Dr. Angus Dalglaish, they have done. Uh, oncologists, they've done amazing work elucidating how we can use low-dose naltrexone and very pure cannabidiol, so CBD, as well for both cancer and for autoimmunity. So they work synergistically together, which I uh, am so impressed with Dr. Douglas's work. He's done some amazing work. So in Britain, I know um, Basically, he told the story of patients who are diagnosed with stage four cancer, given given absolutely no hope, and then they walk down the street and and go to Dr. Douglas, and they have a treatment for stage four, say, pancreatic cancer, which is pretty incredible. He's been using a very high dose of a a CBD, actually a synthetic CBD, which hasn't I don't believe they've reported it yet. How many milligrams? milligrams? It's a lot. It's a lot. Like grams. Uh, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't even know because I've been trying to get a hand on his, his, his paper and I don't have it yet, but, but it's a large, it's a large dose as well as naltrexone, low dose naltrexone. And he's had some amazing reports. Is the LDN taken away from the CBD because it, because it, uh, it may hit similar receptors? No, it it actually works synergistically. So we've got that. That beta, that beta endorphin pathway, that those endorphins and the the and the cannabidiol pathway, uh, that endocannabinoid pathway are are just that. There, it just it doesn't interfere. It's actually synergistic. Now, we I have been using it, you know, with my patients at a lower dose. We're talking say twenty five milligrams at night, um, and then sometimes dosed three or four times during the day as well for patients with chronic pain along with L- LDN. And it has been a, it has been a game changer. So I did want to plug, you know, that we're doing work with CBD and LDN as a, as a really big powerhouse of, of basically reestablishing and, and resetting those receptors and those pathways, which are incredibly powerful for healing. I mean, just, just incredible, incredible. And, uh, and and with respect to Lyme disease and CFSME, these are these are really big deals because there aren't a whole lot of certainly nothing in conventional medicine that that you can just take a pill for say fibromyalgia or CFS to help those mi- that mitochondria heal and to give your body a chance to be able to deal with infection. So the big thing with Lyme disease that I see is that it's so hidden the tests won't come up positive because the immune system has been so hijacked that it can't respond. So patients won't even make antibodies, say if they've got autoimmune thyroid, they won't make antibodies to their thyroid anymore. Their immune system is so depressed. So we actually utilize naltrexone as a way for the immune system to actually be able to recognize these agents and say, oh my gosh, we have a chronic infection and that's a place to start. I mean, it's a really powerful, uh, powerful game changer. That's yeah, probably one of the reasons why vitamin D works so well, because it does, it, that's one of its primary mechanisms is upregulate and modulate the innate. In, in 400 genes plus, immune. absolutely. Well, that's actually closer to 2,500, 25, I think. I just wrote a paper on this. So at least that's the reference I had. 
So it's a lot of genes, nevertheless, and it epigenetically modulates and optimizes them. So it downregulates yes. some and upregulates others. So it's really, really astounding the benefit of that. So I'm wondering how you're using the LDN with cancer patients, because that's really intriguing. Now, before you answer that, I, I am sure you will agree with this. This is not, this is not, is not a magic bullet for cancer. No. It's an adjunctive therapy to treating the primary foundational issues. I'm Absolutely. Sure so don't get confused, folks. This is not the magic bullet. So it's it's not a panache. That's what we always say as LDN prescribers. So I, I'm a medical and research advisor to the LDN Research Trust. And I work with people like Dr. Douglas and other and other oncologists who have a lot of experience using this. Um, Dr. Akbar Khan is at the Medicor Center in Toronto and has amazing case studies and does amazing work with cancer, um, works with other, um, other naturopathic oncologists um, on this and, and utilizing all of the, all of the wonders of, uh, conventional medicine and naturopathic medicine, but, and you can leverage, uh, just a tremendous amount of healing by doing this. Now, LDN, what's so fantastic about it is that if we, we found, and this is not always the case, but Dr. Doug Glace and other people have basically pulse dosed it to allow these receptors to reset, to basically then get enhanced, uh, enhanced cell death, as as Linda said, um, when we use some of these other uh, treatments, even including chemotherapy, and and we have and and then if we combine that with other things such as ketogenic diet and and therapeutic ketogenic diet or other medical diets, again according to that patient's specific cancer and to their type and to their and their uh, their own personal um, epigenetic story, then you have this just powerhouse treatment, this personalized treatment. Well, great. What type of doses are you looking at? Is this the same uh, st treatment strategy and dosing opera recommendation is for conventional? Yes. Okay. So, so we actually are looking at 4.5 milligrams often for, uh, for cancer therapies. Um, some people dose it um, once every three days. Some people do six days on and one night off. Some people take it all the time. It really depends on, on the case. And that's where in the next years that we want to work with all of the prescribers and the researchers um, to, to, really, to really feel out what is best and what can help. So you wrote, as you mentioned earlier, you wrote the appendix chapter uh, in the LDN part two book of how to use this. So can you briefly summarize uh, the, the process if someone is intrigued with this and how they go about identifying a clinician to prescribe this and what the typical dosing strategy is? So the LDN Research Trust has a wonderful site um, for uh, pharmacies, both compounding pharmacies and clinicians that um, that consult and prescribe naltrexone. That's the best place that someone who's looking to find a knowledgeable person should go. Uh, they should definitely go to the LDN Trust um, site. And then once they they find that clinician, you know, there is also a, a grouping of guidelines, which I actually wrote with my team from this fall on there's a prescriber guide, there is a uh, clinician guide, and there's also a patient guide. So it, it's pretty helpful to kind of say, okay, what what 
what clinical um, processes might LDN be used for, and how can we how can we go about dosing that? Now, depending on the case, if a person has chronic pain, they may need to use higher doses and may need to multi-dose um, and be more aggressive. We're finding patients with severe uh, pain, uh, sometimes even mast cell conditions. They need to take it a few times a day. Um, Low-dose naltrexone is a mast cell stabilizer. So we use that. It also helps with the gut. Uh, Dr. Leonard Weinstock's work on, uh, we, we use it um, not only to help stabilize mast cells, but also to help as a motility agent for SIBO. It's pretty fantastic. Um, so, and we use it for restless legs. We use it for so, really? we use so it for L so many conditions. Let me, let me stop you there for a moment. So <laughs> LDN helps for SIBO. It can, yes, because it helps on that migrating motor complex. You know, it helps with motility. Wow, that that's a, a real uh, good point. And and it's to, and it, and I give I give a great deal of credit to Dr. Leonard Weinstock. He's been doing this for a very long time out of WashU, and he he's a very conventional doc that a gastroenterologist that that found that this just helped this group of patients so much. In addition to treating that, into treating. Uh, in addition to treating the bacteria. So again, you get these fist fights in the community now, whether this is a, a vagal nerve problem or a migrating motor complex issue or a bacterial issue. And I say it's chicken or egg, you know, it's it's all of it. And you're, you're wanting to restore all of these things, which is why it's so important to focus on improving vagal motor tone and having patients, you know, get rid of that sympathetic nervous system overdrive. But, but we wanna stabilize uh, mast cells, and we want to help with motility. You know, a lot of these patients with SIBO have chronic hypothyroidism, and they will have, you know, sluggish bowels. So you want to improve motility aside from correcting their hypothyroidism. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty astounding. But anyway, with a general pain condition, we may use that one and a half to three to four and a half milligram strategy. With Hashimoto's, we start, we start, um, lower and slower because patients with Hashimoto's may actually have to reduce their thyroid hormone medication if they're on it because they get reduction of that inflammation and they can produce more of their own thyroid hormones. So we usually start at 0.5. Um, and for patients with mood conditions, because there's there was actually an important paper that came out showing LDN as an important agent for uh, for depression, for patients who who fail those meds, or as an adjunct to antidepressants, and I and I actually in my clinic, if I see a patient with um, elevated CRP or SED rate, I believe that they have an inflammatory basis for their depression, and I use LDN first. And we think lower for those those treatments, 0.5 to one milligram uh, for the for those patients. Now PTSD patients may have to go higher. So there there are all sorts of strategies, and you just need to find a doc who's really, really well-versed in that according to the pain condition or condition. Do you find LDN decreases inflammation in HSCRP? Absolutely. So Dr. Wow. Jared, Jared Younger actually found that the, conversely found that the number one uh, predictor for fibromyalgia patients was if they had an elevated SED rate. Those patients did better if they had an elevated SED rate. Um, and, and I find that it, it dramatically improves uh, biomarkers, but it doesn't always work right away. If a person, for instance, has a has a very has an inflamed um, uh, gut, or especially a dermatologic issue like psoriasis, you really have to work on the gut. But that can take up to eighteen months to heal, and we, you know, it can take a it can take quite a long time. Oh, excellent, excellent. So, it's uh, 
I'm really glad that you came down with the Hashimoto's because you know, that's what it requires. And you're actually one of those rare physicians who, um, you know, really just doesn't rely on conventional training. And, and despite your training and brainwashing, you went outside the box to find solutions that really indeed work. So well, I, I paid a price for it, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, I became, I became a really big black sheep in my, in my, in my uh, residency. They knew I, they knew I got better, but when I started to describe how I got better, nobody wanted to hear about it. And I, you know, I actually had to leave my, my private practice and start my own practice and be completely, you know, completely wow. on my own, completely on my own to, to, to practice what I preach. So I'm assuming, you know, as I said, I haven't been practicing for a long time, but even before I was, I left doing that, there was a migration away from seeing your own patients in the hospital that that care was transferred to the hospitalist. I think it's a wise strategy because it's just too darn hard to be proficient in both areas of medicine, office-based medicine and hospital. There's two different specialties. So I'm what? So I'm assuming you don't see patients in the hospital. You refer those out. I don't, I don't, but, but I, I really keep, you know, I, I hear about if I have a patient hospitalized, I do my best to, to liaison and, and, and as long as, as long as that, if a hospitalist would be willing or an ER to talk to me, I, I want to talk to them about what's going on okay. with my patients. So how, how are your re professional, uh, relationships and, and, and with your colleagues at this point that are you still viewed as the black sheep or do yeah. they have, have they come to learn and respect <laughs> what you're doing because you're getting patients better that they can't even touch with a 10 foot pole i you know i i think that the tide is turning i think there was a lot of skepticism of what i did definitely in residency in the first several years you know i'm about you know six years out and 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 practicing i'm still a relatively new attending as they as uh, you know uh, as they say but um people are now referring to me you know people that know me they are referring their tough patients to me they say i don't know what she does exactly but she's <laughs> getting she's getting results you know i have some colleagues as a you know rheumatologists other people and you know what's really What's so hard is some sometimes I will need a conventional doc too, you yeah, know, sure. and and I will and Absolutely. I will ask. So I'll ask my colleagues. So for instance, I'll give you an example. So uh, I have a Sjogren's patient that. So there's some studies on Sjogren's that if you use DHEA and we look at their hormones to make sure that they've got a pathway that would be favorable to use DHEA that that um, that it's actually a lack of androgens that can um, that can cause this uh, this this problem with production of, um, of the saliva and the gland. So interesting. So dry eyes, dry mouth. And I asked my colleague, I said, I said, Hey, have you ever used DHEA on any of your Sjogren's patients? And he said, well, I had a couple of patients that asked about it. So I referred them to an endocrinologist, but the endocrinologist didn't read that paper. So the, there's pro the problem is there's no crosstalk. So I have uh, I have a lot of animosity between me and a lot of the endocrinologists in my area as far as how I treat hypothyroidism and and um, and and how I go about looking at the whole picture. You know, there are most doctors that I know they still won't agree that that diet has any place in chronic illness, and I don't know where I can start. You know, I have room, I have, I use LDN on, on, for infertility as well, by, based on the work of Dr. Phil Boyle, he's out of um, Galway, Ireland. And I, I've had to actually write consultative letters to reproductive endocrinologists who have threatened my patients that their baby would go through withdrawal for being on an opiate medication. And I had to say, <laughs> I had, I had to say, excuse me, 
This is not an opioid medication. Anti-opioid. This is an opioid antagonist. And and so uh, that you know that all being said, I'm I'm giving kind of the Gosh. horror stories, but so, but there are some there are some good good people out there, and they are referring to me, and there are they you know they basically view me kind of as an enigma, and you know that's yeah. how it is. Shocking, but I guess maybe not shocking that people that some physicians could be that professionally ignorant of the pharmacological basics. It's like, and it's also it's also there's just this fear response, you know, and I all all I can say is please, please just, just be open to education. You know, I'm, I'm using a conventional medicine here. Now, Trexone is as conventional as it comes. We're repurposing it and it has a profound scientific mechanism of action. And there's a whole burgeoning science of Naltrexone. Dr. Jared Younger's out of University of Alabama, Birmingham. He was trained out of Stanford. He, there, you know, he's got one of the, one of the a uh, few labs that's devoted to naltrexone. And um, the goal is for the research trust to be raising lots of money so that we can, so that we can start doing these trials. The problem is there's no, you know, there's no money in it. Um, so, so we're kind of on our own. Well, one last question for you, and then we'll get back to Linda. Uh, so I'm just per- personally curious uh, how your, Hash- the Hashimoto's is going with your, your, uh, you per- and if you, been able to wean yourself off the medication. You've got that controlled now after four, four, what, six years? So unfortunately, I suspect that I had hypothyroidism since I was a child uh, and, and I had had a whole lot of trauma in my life. Um, and I was not even diagnosed with hypothyroidism until I was, you know, close to 20 and then was poorly treated with hypo with Synthroid for mm-hmm. 10 plus years. That all took a tremendous toll and I had a significant atrophy of my gland. That wow. being said, that being said, I was told I would never have children. I have two healthy, beautiful children. Um, I, I was able to reverse other conditions uh, that they said that I might, you know, that I might continue to get worse from. And I, I could practice medicine. I was bed bound with terrible pain. And I, I get up every day and I have, no pain. I mean, that is just, I mean, it is profound, you know, the thing, the things that I've been able to, to, to do that being said, I still take thyroid medication. Now it was very clear to me that the, one of the the most powerful differentiations between a a clinician or physician who practices natural medicine and conventional medicine is the type of thyroid medicine they're prescribing. Your conventional docs are going to almost universally prescribe Synthroid or Levothroid where, where the uh, natural medicines prescribe uh, a desiccated thyroid hormone extract. And I suspect you're taking the latter. So what's so interesting is there's a whole huge science and I can't, I have a book, I have a book outline that's 35 chapters long. <laughs> so <laughs> currently that I want to write, um, but- on, th- on thyroid, what's the book on thyroid? Yeah, on thyroid and just my my experience on medical training and and you know turning to the dark side and and all all about all about just this experience. I'm one of the few clinicians in this country, probably more than this country, that does that has a very scientific approach to hypothyroidism and including the art of thyroid hormone replacement. Now, there's certain patients who won't tolerate natural desiccated thyroid. Plus, we have a big problem with our natural desiccated thyroids going oh. on right now. There have been a lot of recalls. It's been tremendously stressful for my 
thousands of patients right. and for well, myself. Well, we um, won't go into the details and we'll save that for the next interview. But anyway, there, there's an art. So I either prescribe some very clean synthetic and often compounded T3 and T4 okay. or natural desiccated thyroid plus minus T3. But in, in general, we need to replace all of the thyroid hormones. That's T4, yes. T3, T2, T1, T1, calcitonin, trace amounts of iodine. It's all in there. Yeah. Yeah. And just, it just astonishes me that the regular physicians don't understand that it's, it's not just simply T4, uh, which is a, what almost, I would say in over 95% of the thyroid patients on uh, thyroid replacement therapy are getting. Correct. Yeah. So it's crazy. Well, this has been a delight. So Linda, let's, let's go back to you. And uh, if you have any closing comments or points you'd like to emphasize and how people can support your work at the LDN research trust bound. Yes. Not only is it, um, <clears throat> let's say, alternative doctors who are prescribing LDN, as in the naturopathic doctors. We have many MDs that are in tra traditional medicine mm -hmm. who have found that they weren't able to um, help their patients. They've gone on to do extra training in functional medicine, integrative medicine, and people will say, oh, but that's all very well. But when a consultant's going to start prescribing LDN, we know gastroenterologists, dermatologists, pediatricians, um, gynecologists, uh, rheumatologists that are prescribing LDN. Now, that has been a big wow, you know, and, and oncologists too, um, to get people of clout behind LDN you know it makes it more believable when you have you know the big guns behind you sure sure but if you look on the website um we've got Which is, lots is of ldnresearchtrust.org ldnresearchtrust.org and you can actually find the LDN book one and two and LDN book two there is a short video of all the doctors that took part in writing chapters, you can listen, they do, each of them do a summary of their book. And if anybody is interested in helping and supporting us, we do have a donate button. Um, we are a nonprofit, everybody works as a, a volunteer. And we don't get any funding from anywhere. So of course <laughs> we, not. No, we struggle. <laughs> well, maybe you could submit a grant uh, request to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm sure they'd be happy to support you. Not you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. No, that was sarcasm. Uh, so, but anyway, I wanted to deeply express express my deep uh, 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 gratitude for all your commitment and dedication and the the resources you've compiled and provided over the years and what you've been able to put together to coordinate. That's that's no small task. I've seen it before in other areas, uh, specifically my work with the uh, rheumatoid arthritis where they had a similar uh, patient group that was coordinated that really did a lot of good work. So that's where it comes from. Usually the professionals are too busy with their, their own practices in life to put something together like this. And it requires a patient organization to, to collaborate and provide the resources that are so necessary for this type of important intervention to spread because it's not gonna be spread by pharma. The drug reps are not going to go to doctor's office and start pushing LDN because there is no money to be made in this. So uh, 
again, thank you because a lot of this would have never happened without your your diligence and dedication. So really deeply appreciate your work. <laughs> Linda pulls her hair out. She has to she has to herd clinicians around. You know, it's like it's pretty much herding cats trying to get all of us on deadline <laughs> to write to write for the trust and and you know and to get us all together for our conferences. I mean, she she does just she's an unsung hero. Yes, indeed. Well, I'm we're good seeing, at nagging. <laughs> yeah, well, we need that. We all need that. So uh, someone's got to do it. And thank you for taking up the, the banter or the banner and doing that process. So deeply appreciate it. And again, the, the website, lots of great information there, folks, ldnresearchtrust.org. So you keep up the good work and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you.